Welcome to Volume 5 of The Shadow Out of Time, Chapter 7. From that point forward, my impressions are scarcely to be relied upon. Indeed, I still possess a final desperate hope that they all form parts of some demonic dream or an illusion born of delirium. A fever raged in my brain and everything came to me through a kind of haze, sometimes only intermittently. The rays of my torch shot feebly into the engulfing blackness, bringing phantasmal flashes of hideously familiar walls and carvings, all blighted with the decay of ages. In one place, a tremendous mass of vaulting had fallen, so that I had to clamber over a mighty mound of stones, reaching almost to the ragged, grotesquely stalactited roof. It was all the ultimate apex of nightmare, made worse by the blasphemous tug of pseudo-memory. One thing only was unfamiliar, and that was my own size in relation to the monstrous masonry. I felt oppressed by a sense of unwanted smallness, as if the sight of these towering walls from a mere human body was something wholly new and abnormal. Again and again I looked nervously down at myself, vaguely disturbed by the human form I possessed. Onward through the blackness of the abyss I leapt, plunged and staggered, often falling and bruising myself, and once nearly shattering my torch. Every stone and corner of that demonic gulf was known to me, and at many points I stopped to cast beams of light through choked and crumbling, yet familiar archways. Some rooms had totally collapsed, others were bare or debris-filled. In a few I saw masses of metal, some fairly intact, some broken, some crushed and battered. I recognized these as the colossal pedestals or tables of my dreams. What they could in truth have been I dared not guess. I found the downward incline and began its descent, though after a time halted by a gaping ragged chasm whose narrowest point could not be less than four feet across. Here the stonework had fallen through, revealing incalculable inky depths beneath. I knew there were two more cellar levels in this titan edifice, and trembled with fresh panic as I recalled the metal-clamped trap door on the lowest one. There would be no guards now, for what had lurked beneath had long since done its hideous work and sunk into its long decline. By the time of the post-human beetle race, it would be quite dead, and yet, as I thought of the native legends, I trembled anew. It cost me terrible effort to vault that yawning chasm, since the littered floor prevented a running start, but madness drove me on. I chose a place close to the left-hand wall, where the rift was least wide, and the landing spot reasonably clear of dangerous debris, and after one frantic moment reached the other side in safety. At last, gaining the lower level, I stumbled on past the archway of the room of machines, within which were fantastic ruins of metal, half buried beneath fallen vaulting. 
Everything was where I knew it would be, and I climbed confidently over the heaps which barred the entrance of a vast transverse corridor. This, I realized, would take me under the city to the central archives. Endless ages seemed to unroll as I stumbled, leaped, and crawled along that debris-cluttered corridor. Now and then I could make out carvings on the age-stained walls, some familiar, others seemingly added since the period of my dreams. Since this was a subterranean house-connecting highway, there were no archways, save when the route led through the lower levels of various buildings. At some of these intersections, I turned aside long enough to look down well-remembered corridors and into well-remembered rooms. Twice only did I find any radical change from what I had dreamed of, and in one of these cases I could trace the sealed-up outlines of the archway I remembered. I shook violently and felt a curious surge of retarding weakness. As I steered a hurried and reluctant course through the crypt of one of those great windowless ruined towers whose alien basalt masonries bespoke of whispered and horrible origins. This primal vault was round and fully two hundred feet across, with nothing carved upon the dark-hued stonework. The floor was here free from anything save dust and sand, and I could see the apertures leading upward and downward. There were no stairs or inclines. Indeed, my dreams had pictured those elder towers as wholly untouched by the fabulous great race. Those who had built them had not needed stairs or inclines. In the dreams, the downward aperture had been tightly sealed and nervously guarded. Now it lay open, black, and yawning, giving forth a current of cool, damp air. Of what limitless caverns of eternal night might brood below, I did not permit myself to think. Later, crawling my way along a badly heaped section of the corridor, I reached a place where the roof had wholly caved in. The debris rose like a mountain, and I climbed over it, passing through a vast, empty space where my torchlight could reveal neither walls nor vaulting. This, I reflected, must be the cellar of the house of the metal purveyors. I found the corridor again, beyond the mountain of detritus and stone, but after a short distance, encountered a wholly choked place where the fallen vaulting almost touched the perilously sagging ceiling. How I managed to wrench and tear aside enough blocks to afford a passage, and how I dared disturb the tightly packed fragments when the least shift of equilibrium might have brought down all the tons of superincumbent masonry to crush me to nothingness, I do not know. It was sheer madness that impelled and guided me, if indeed my whole underground adventure was not, as I hope, a hellish delusion or a phase of dreaming. But I did make, or dream that I made, a passage that I could squirm through. As I wriggled over the mound of debris, my torch, switched continuously on, thrust deeply in my mouth. I felt myself torn by the fantastic stalactites on the jagged floor above me. I was now close to the great underground archival structure 
which seemed to form my goal. Sliding and clambering down the farther side of the barrier and picking my way along the remaining stretch of corridor with hand-held, intermittently flashing torch, I came at last to a low, circular crypt with arches, still in a marvelous state of preservation, opening off on every side. The walls, or such part of them as lay within reach of my torchlight, were densely hieroglyphed and chiseled with typical curvilinear symbols, some added since the period of my dreams. This, I realized, was my fated destination, and I turned at once through a familiar archway on my left. That I could find a clear passage up and down the incline to all the surviving levels, I had oddly little doubt. This vast, earth-protected pile, housing the annals of all the solar system, had been built with supernal skill and strength to last as long as that system itself. Blocks of stupendous size, poised with mathematical genius and bound with cements of incredible toughness, had combined to form a mass as firm as the planet's rocky core. Here, after ages more prodigious than I could insanely grasp, its buried bulk stood in all its essential contours. The vast, dust-drifted floors, scarce sprinkled with the litter elsewhere so dominant. The relatively easy walk from this point onward went curiously to my head. All the frantic eagerness hitherto frustrated by obstacles now took itself out in a kind of febrile speed, and I literally raced along the low-roofed, monstrously well-remembered aisles beyond the archway. I was past being astonished by the familiarity of what I saw. On every hand, the great, hieroglyphed metal of shelf doors loomed monstrously. Some yet in place, others sprung open, still others bent and buckled under bygone geological stresses, not quite strong enough to shatter the titan masonry. Here and there a dust-covered heap beneath a gaping empty shelf seemed to indicate where cases had been shaken down by earth tremors. On occasional pillars were great symbols or letters proclaiming classes and subclasses of volumes. Once I paused before an open vault where I saw some of the accustomed metal cases still in position amidst the omnipresent gritty dust. Reaching up, I dislodged one of the thinner specimens with some difficulty and rested it on the floor for inspection. It was titled in the prevailing curvilinear hieroglyphs, though something in the arrangement of the characters seemed subtly unusual. The odd mechanism of the hooked fastener was perfectly well known to me, and I snapped up the still rustless and workable lid and drew out the book within. The latter, as expected, was some twenty by fifteen inches in area and two inches thick, the thin metal covers opening at the top. Its tough celluloid pages seemed unaffected by the myriad cycles of time they had lived through, and I studied the queerly pigmented, brush-drawn letters of the text symbols. Unlike either the usual curved hieroglyphs or any alphabet known to human scholarship, with a haunting, half-aroused memory. 
It came to me that this was the language used by a captive mind I had known slightly in my dreams, a mind from a large asteroid on which had survived much of the archaic life and lore of the primal planet whereof it had formed a fragment. At the same time I recalled that this level of the archives was devoted to volumes dealing with non-terrestrial planets. As I ceased poring over this incredible document, I saw that the light of my torch was beginning to fail. Hence, quickly, I inserted the extra battery I always had with me. Then, armed with the stronger radiance, I resumed my feverish racing through the unending tangles of aisles and corridors, recognizing now and then some familiar shelf and vaguely annoyed by the acoustic conditions which made my footfalls echo incongruously in these catacombs. The very prints of my shoes behind me in the millennially untrodden dust made me shudder. Never before, if my mad dreams held anything of truth, had human feet pressed upon those immemorial pavements. Of the particular goal of my insane racing, my conscious mind held not a hint. There was, however, some force of evil potency pulling at my dazed will and buried recollection, so that I vaguely felt I was not running at random. I came to a downward incline and followed it to profounder depths. Floors flashed by me as I raced, but I did not pause to explore them. In my whirling brain there had begun a beat, a certain rhythm which set my right hand twitching in unison. I wanted to unlock something and felt that I knew all the intricate twists and pressures needed to do that. It would be like a modern safe with a combination lock. Dream or not, I had once known, and still knew, how any dream or scrap of unconsciously absorbed legend could have taught me a detail so minute, so intricate, so complex, I did not attempt to explain to myself. I was beyond all coherent thought, for was not this whole experience this shocking familiarity with a set of unknown ruins, and this monstrously exact identity of everything before me with what only dreams and scraps of myth could have suggested, a horror beyond all reason? Probably it was my basic conviction then, as it is now during my saner moments, that I was not awake at all, and that the entire buried city was a fragment of febrile hallucination. Eventually, I reached the lowest level and struck off to the right of the incline. For some shadowy reason, I tiled to soften my steps, even though I lost speed thereby. There was a space I was afraid to cross on this last deeply buried floor. As I drew near it, I recalled what thing in that space I feared. It was merely one of the metal-barred and closely guarded trap doors. There would be no guards now, and on that account I trembled and tiptoed as I had done in passing through that black basalt vault where a similar trap door had yawned. I felt a current of cool, damp air as I had felt there, and wished that my course led in another direction. Why I had to take the particular course I was taking I did not know. When I came to the space, I saw that the trap door yawned widely. Ahead, the shelves began again, 
and I glimpsed on the floor before one of them a heap very thinly covered with dust where a number of cases had recently fallen. At the same time, a fresh wave of panic clutched me, though for some time I could not discover why. Heaps of fallen cases were not uncommon, for all through the eons this lightless labyrinth had been racked by the heavings of earth and had echoed at intervals of the deafening clatter of toppling objects. It was only when I was nearly across the space I realized why I shook so violently. Not the heap, but something about the dust of the level floor was troubling me. In the light of my torch it seemed as if the dust were not even as it ought to be. There were places where it looked thinner, as if it had been disturbed not many months before. I could not be sure, for even the apparently thinner places were dusty enough, yet a certain suspicion of regularity in the fancy not evenness was highly disquieting. When I brought the torchlight close to one of the queer places, I did not like what I saw, for the illusion of regularity became very great. It was as if there were regular lines of composite impressions, impressions that went in threes, each slightly over a foot square, and consisting of five nearly circular three-inch prints, one in advance of the other four. These possible lines of foot-square impressions appeared to lead in two directions, as if something had gone somewhere and returned. They were, of course, very faint and may have been illusions or accidents, but there was an element of dim, fumbling terror about the way I thought they ran for at one end of them was a heap of cases which must have clattered down not long before, while at the other end was the ominous trap door with the cool, damp wind yawning unguarded down to abysses past imagination. Chapter 8 that my strange sense of compulsion was deep and overwhelming is shown by its conquest of my fear. No rational motive could have drawn me on after that hideous suspicion of Prince and the creeping dream memories it excited. Yet my right hand, even as it shook with fright, still twitched rhythmically in its eagerness to turn a lock it hoped to find. Before I knew it, I was past the heap of lately fallen cases and running on tiptoe through aisles of utterly unbroken dust toward a point which I seemed to know morbidly, horribly well. My mind was asking itself questions whose origin and relevancy I was only beginning to guess. Would the shelf be reachable by a human body? Could my human hand master all the eon-remembered motions of the lock? Would the lock be undamaged and workable? And what would I do? What dare I do with what, as I now commenced to realize, I both hoped and feared to find? Would it prove the awesome, brain-shattering truth of something past normal conception, or show only that I was dreaming? The next I knew... I had ceased my tiptoed racing and was standing still, staring at a row of maddeningly familiar hieroglyphed shelves.
They were in a state of almost perfect preservation, and only three of the doors in this vicinity had sprung open. My feelings toward these shelves cannot be described. So utter and insistent was the sense of old acquaintance. I was looking high up at a row near the top and wholly out of my reach and wondering how I could climb to best advantage. An open door, four rows from the bottom, would help, and the locks of the closed doors formed possible holes for hands and feet. I would grip the torch between my teeth, as I had in other places where both hands were needed. Above all, I must make no noise. How to get down what I wished to remove would be difficult, but I could probably hook its movable fastener with my coat collar and carry it like a knapsack. Again, I wondered whether the lock would be undamaged. That I could repeat each familiar motion, I had not the least doubt, but I hoped the thing would not scrape or creak and that my hand could work it properly. Even as I thought these things, I had taken the torch in my mouth and begun to climb. The projecting locks were poor supports, but, as I had expected, the open shelf helped greatly. I used both the swinging door and the edge of the aperture itself in my ascent and managed to avoid any loud creaking. Balanced on the upper edge of the door and leaning far to my right, I could just reach the lock I sought. My fingers, half numb from climbing, were clumsy at first, but I soon saw they were anatomically adequate and the memory rhythm was strong in them. Out of unknown gulfs of time, the intricate, secret motions had somehow reached my brain correctly in every detail, for after less than five minutes of trying, there came a click whose familiarity was all the more startling because I had not consciously anticipated it. In another instant, the metal door was slowly swinging open with only the faintest grating sound. Dazedly, I looked over the row of grayish case ends thus exposed and felt a tremendous surge of some wholly inexplicable emotion. Just within reach of my right hand was a case whose curving hieroglyphs made me shake with a pang infinitely more complex than one of mere fright. Still shaking, I managed to dislodge it amidst a shower of gritty flakes and ease it over toward myself without any violent noise. Like the other case I had handled, it was slightly more than 20 by 15 inches in size, with curved mathematical designs and low relief. Its thickness just exceeded three inches. Crudely wedging it between myself and the surface I was climbing, I fumbled with the fastener and finally got the hook free. Lifting the cover, I shifted the heavy object to my back and let the hook catch hold of my collar. Hands now free, I awkwardly clambered down to the dusty floor and prepared to inspect my prize. Kneeling in the gritty dust, I swung the case around and rested it in front of me. My hand shook, and I dreaded to draw out the book within almost as much as I longed and felt compelled to do so. It had very gradually become clear to me what I ought to find, and this realization nearly paralyzed my faculties. If the thing were there, and if I were not dreaming, the implications would be quite beyond the power of the human spirit to bear.
What tormented me most was my momentary inability to feel that my surroundings were a dream. The sense of reality was hideous, and again become so as I recall the scene. At length, I tremblingly pulled the book from its container and stared fascinatedly at the well-known hieroglyphs on the cover. It seemed to be in prime condition, and the curvilinear letters of the title held me in almost a hypnotized state, as if I could read them. Indeed, I cannot swear that I did not actually read them in some transient and terrible access of abnormal memory. I do not know how long it was before I dared to lift the thin metal cover. I temporized and made excuses to myself. I took the torch from my mouth and shut it off to save the battery. Then in the dark, I collected my courage, finally lifting the cover without turning on the light. Last of all, I did indeed flash the torch upon the exposed page, stealing myself in advance to suppress any sound no matter what I should find. I looked for an instant and then collapsed. Clenching my teeth to keep silent, I sank wholly to the floor and put a hand to my forehead amidst the engulfing blackness. What I dreaded and expected was there. Either I was dreaming, or time and space had become a mockery. I must be dreaming. But I would test the horror by carrying this thing back and showing it to my son if it were indeed a reality. My head swam frightfully, even though there were no visible objects in the unbroken gloom to swirl about me. Ideas and images of the starkest terror, excited by vistas which my glimpse had opened up, began to throng in upon me and crowd my senses. I thought of those possible prints in the dust and trembled at the sound of my own breathing as I did so. Once again I flashed on the light and looked at the page, as a serpent's victim may look at his destroyer's eyes and fangs. Then, with clumsy fingers, in the dark, I closed the book, put it in its container, and snapped the lid and the curious hooked fastener. This was what I must carry back to the outer world if it truly existed, if the whole abyss truly existed, if I and the world itself truly existed. Just when I tottered to my feet and commenced my return, I cannot be certain. It comes to me oddly, as a measure of my sense of separation from the normal world, that I did not even once look at my watch during those hideous hours underground. Torch in hand and with the ominous case under one arm, I eventually found myself tiptoeing in a kind of silent panic past the draft, giving the abyss and those lurking suggestions of prints a wide berth. I lessened my precautions as I climbed up the endless inclines, but I could not shake off a shadow of apprehension which I had not felt on the downward journey. I dreaded having to repass through the black basalt crypt that was older than the city itself where cold drafts welled up from unguarded depths. The thought of that which the great race had feared, and of what still might be lurking, be it ever so weak and dying down there. I thought of those five circle prints, and of what my dreams had told me of such prints, 
and of strange winds and whistling noises associated with them, and I thought of the tales of the modern blackfellows, wherein the horror of great winds and nameless subterrene ruins was dwelt upon. I knew from a carven wall symbol the right floor to enter, and came at last, after passing that other book I had examined, to the great circular space with the branching archways. On my right, and at once recognizable, was the arch through which I had arrived. This I now entered, conscious that the rest of my course would be harder because of the tumbled state of the masonry outside the archive building. My new metal burden weighed upon me, and I found it harder and harder to be quiet as I stumbled among debris and fragments of every sort. Then I came to the ceiling-high mound of debris through which I had wrenched a scanty passage. My dread at wriggling through again was infinite, for my first passage had made some noise, and I now, after seeing those possible prints, dreaded sound above all things. The case, too, doubled the problem of traversing the narrow crevasse, but I clambered up the barrier as best I could, and I pushed the case through the aperture ahead of me. Then, torch in mouth, I scrambled through myself, my back torn as before by stalactites. As I tried to grasp the case again, it fell some distance ahead of me, down the slope of the debris, making a disturbing clatter and arousing echoes which sent me into cold perspiration. I lunged for it once and regained it without further noise, but a moment afterward the slipping of blocks under my feet raised a sudden, unprecedented din. The din was my undoing, for falsely or not, I heard it answered in a terrible way from spaces far behind me. I thought I heard a shrill whistling sound like nothing else on earth, and beyond any adequate verbal description. If so, what followed has a grim irony, since, save for the panic of this thing, the second thing might never have happened. As it was, my frenzy was absolute and unrelieved. Taking my torch in hand and clutching feebly at the case, I leapt and bounded wildly ahead, with no idea in my brain beyond a mad desire to race out of these nightmare ruins to the waking world of desert and moonlight which lay far above. I hardly knew it when I reached the mountain of debris which towered into the vast blackness beyond the caved-in roof. I had bruised and cut myself repeatedly in scrambling up its steep slope of jagged blocks and fragments. Then came the great disaster. Just as I blindly crossed the summit, unprepared for the sudden dip ahead, my feet slipped utterly, and I found myself involved in a mangling avalanche of sliding masonry whose cannon-loud uproar split the black cavern air in a deafening series of earth-shaking reverberations. I have no recollection of emerging from this chaos, but a momentary fragment of consciousness shows me as plunging and tripping and scrambling along the corridor amidst the clangor, case and torch still with me. Then, just as I approached that primal basalt crypt I had so dreaded, utter madness came, 
For as the echoes of the avalanche died down, there became audible a repetition of that frightful alien whistling I thought I had heard before. This time there was no doubt about it. And what worse, it came from a point not behind me, but ahead of me. Probably I shrieked aloud then. I have a dim picture of myself as flying through the hellish basalt vault of the elder things and hearing that damnable alien sound piping up from the open, unguarded door of limitless nether blackness. There was a wind, too. Not merely a cool, damp draft, but a violent, purposeful blast belching savagely and frigidly from that abominable gulf whence the obscene whistling came. There are memories of leaping and lurching over obstacles of every sort, with that torrent of wind and shrieking sound growling moment by moment, and seeming to curl and twist purposefully around me as it struck out wickedly from the spaces behind and beneath. Though in my rear that wind had the odd effect of hindering instead of aiding my progress, as if it acted like a noose or lasso thrown around me, Heedless of the noise I made now, I clattered over a great barrier of blocks and was again in the structure that led to the surface. I recall glimpsing the archway to the room of machines and, and almost crying out as I saw the incline leading down to one of those blasphemous trap doors must be yawning two levels below. But instead of crying out, I muttered over and over again to myself, that this was all a dream from which I must soon awake. Perhaps I was in camp, perhaps I was at home in Arkham. As these hopes bolstered up my sanity, I began to mount the incline to the higher level. I knew, of course, that I had the four-foot cleft to recross, yet was too racked by other fears to realize the full horror until I came almost upon it. On my descent, the leap across had been easy, but could I clear the gap as readily when going uphill, and hampered by fright, exhaustion, the weight of the metal case, and the anomalous backward tug of that demon wind? I thought of these things at the last moment, and thought also of the nameless entities which might be lurking in the black abysses below the chasm. My wavering torch was growing feeble but I could tell by some obscure memory when I neared the cleft. The chill blasts of wind and the nauseating whistling shrieks behind me were for the moment like a merciful opiate, dulling my imagination to the horror of the yawning gulf ahead. And then I became aware of the added blasts and whistling in front of me, tides of abomination surging up through the cleft itself from depths unimagined and unimaginable. Now, indeed, the essence of pure nightmare was upon me. Sanity departed, and ignoring everything except the animal impulse of flight, I merely struggled and plunged upward over the incline's debris as if no gulf had existed. Then I saw the chasm's edge, leapt frenziedly with every ounce of strength I possessed, and was instantly engulfed in a pandemonium vortex of loathsome sound and utter materially tangible blackness. This is the end of my experience, so far as I can recall. 
Any further impressions belong wholly to the domain of phantasmagoria, delirium, dream, madness, and memory merged wildly together in a series of fantastic, fragmentary delusions which can have no relation to anything real. There was a hideous fall through incalculable leagues of viscous, sentient darkness and a babble of noises utterly alien to all that we know of the earth and its organic life. Dormant, rudimentary senses seemed to start into vitality within me, telling of pits and voids peopled by floating horrors and leading to sunless crags and oceans and teeming cities of windowless basalt towers upon which no light ever shone. Secrets of the primal planet and its immemorial eons flashed through my brain without the aid of sight or sound. And there were known to me things which not even the wildest of my former dreams had ever suggested. And while the cold fingers of damp vapor clutched and picked at me, and that eldritch, damnable whistling shrieked fiendishly above all the alternations of babble and silence in the whirlpools of darkness around. Afterwards, there were visions of the Cyclopean city of my dreams, not in ruins, but just as I had dreamed of it. I was in my conical non-human body again, and mingled with crowds of the great race, and the captive minds who carried books up and down the lofty corridors and vast inclines. Then, superimposed upon these pictures, were frightful, momentary flashes of a non-vestial consciousness involving desperate struggles, arriving free from clutching tentacles of whistling wind, an insane bat-like flight through half-solid air, a feverish burrowing through the cyclone-whipped darkness, and a wild stumbling and scrambling over fallen masonry. Once there was a curious, intrusive flash of half-sight, a faint, diffuse suspicion of bluish radiance far overhead. Then there came a dream of wind, pursued climbing and crawling, of wriggling into a blaze of sardonic moonlight through a jumble of debris which slid and collapsed after me amid a morbid hurricane. It was the evil, monotonous beating of that maddening moonlight which at last told me of the return of what I had once known as the objective waking world. I was clawing prone through the sands of the Australian desert, and around me shrieked such a tumult of wind as I have never before known on our planet's surface. My clothing was in rags, and my whole body was a mass of bruises and scratches. Full consciousness returned very slowly, and at no time could I tell just where delirious dream left off and true memory began. There had seemed to be a mound of titan blocks, an abyss beneath it, a monstrous revelation from the past, and a nightmare horror at the end. But how much of that was real? My flashlight was gone, and likewise, any metal case I may have discovered, had there been such a case, or any abyss, or any mound? Raising my head, I looked behind me, 
and saw only the sterile, undulant sands of the desert. The demon wind died down, and the bloated, fungoid moon sank reddeningly in the west. I lurched to my feet and began to stagger southwestward toward the camp. What in truth had happened to me? Had I merely collapsed in the desert and dragged a dream-racked body over miles of sand and buried blocks? If not, how could I bear to live any longer? In this new doubt, all my faith in the myth-born unreality of my visions dissolved once more into hellish older doubting. If that abyss was real, then the great race was real, and its blasphemous reachings and seizures in the cosmos-wide vortex of time were not myths or nightmares, but a terrible, soul-shattering actuality. Had I in full hideous fact been drawn back to a pre-human world of a hundred and fifty million years ago in those dark, baffling days of the amnesia? Had my present body been the vehicle of a frightful alien consciousness from Paleogeon gulfs of time? Had I, as the captive mind of those shambling horrors, indeed known that accursed city of stone in its primal heyday, and wriggled down those familiar corridors in the loathsome shape of my captors? Were those tormenting dreams of more than twenty years the offspring of stark, monstrous memories? Had I once veritably talked with minds from reachless corners of time and space, learned the universe's secrets, past and to come, and written the annals of my own world for the metal cases of those titan archives? And were those others, those shocking elder things of the mad winds and demon pipings, in truth a lingering, lurking menace, waiting and slowly weakening in black abysses, while varied shapes of life drag out their multi-millennial courses on the planet's age-racked surface? I do not know. If that abyss and what I held were real, there is no hope. Then, all too truly, there lies upon this world of man a mocking and incredible shadow out of time. But... Mercifully, there is no proof that these things are utter than fresh phases of my myth-born dreams. I did not bring back the metal case that would have been proof. And so far, those subterranean corridors have not been found. If the laws of the universe are kind, they will never be found. But I must tell my son what I saw, or thought I saw and let him use his judgment as a psychologist, engaging the reality of my experiences and communicating this account to others. I have said that the awful truth behind my tortured years of dreaming hinges absolutely upon the actuality of what I thought I saw in those cyclopean buried ruins. It has been hard for me, literally, to set down that crucial revelation, though no reader can have failed to guess it. Of course, it lay in that book within the metal case, the case which I pried out of its lair amidst the dust of a million centuries. 
No eye had seen, no hand had touched that book since the advent of man to this planet. And yet, when I flashed my torch upon it in that frightful abyss, I saw that the queerly pigmented letters on the brittle eon-brown cellulose pages were not indeed any nameless hieroglyphs of Earth's youth. They were instead the letters of our familiar alphabet, spelling out the words of the English language in my own handwriting. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you have enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of The Shadow Out of Time by H.P. Lovecraft. The opening and closing themes are called Lost City 1 and Lost City 2 by Terry Divine King. I'm sure that you'll agree that they lent a certain atmospheric quality to the presentation. For those of you interested in more of Terry's music, you can find it on the Freesound Project website at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Performance Copyright 2007 by Uvula Audio. All rights reserved. Please feel free to write to us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. We would love to hear from you and we'll be reading the most interesting notes on our listener feedback show in a few weeks. We are listed on Podcast Alley, as many of you know. Please feel free to vote for the adult book cast so that we can get more listeners. We already have the number one children's podcast on Podcast Alley, and this is the first month that we have moved into the top 100 podcasts. It would be great if the adult podcast could get ranked up there as well. Also, if you are so inclined, we have both Uvula Audio and slightly more literary t-shirts, doodads, and gym cracks at our Cafe Press website. The links can be found on the main homepage of Uvula Audio as well as on the adult bookcast webpage at Uvula. We have a new awesome t-shirt with the magazine cover from the 1936 astounding debut of The Shadow Out of Time. Please take a look. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. In keeping with Lovecraft's love of parenthetical expressions, I just wanted to add an observation on some of the scientific information from this story. I listened last week in Chicago to a seminar from a UCLA paleobiologist by the name of Schaaf, who spoke about evidence for the very earliest life on Earth. What I was surprised at was his comment that Western Australia has some of the oldest fossils on the face of the Earth, upwards of 3.2 billion years old. He further stated that those rocks survived there so long because that part of the world was so geologically stable. I don't know if Lovecraft actually knew this for fact and set the Yith Library City there as the most logical place to be for his story, or whether he simply thought that the location sounded cool and exotic, but it certainly sent a shiver down my spine when I heard this from an entirely different source. Our next adult offering will be much lighter than the last. In a few weeks, we'll be doing the very funny P.G. Wodehouse book, Jeeves in the Morning. I think that you'll find Bertie Wooster a much more cheery fellow than poor old Nathaniel Wingate Peasley. From all of us here at Uvula Audio, 
We thank you.